When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're coming to the Church of Music. If you're coming to our show, we want you to dance, clap, dance along. Noel and I are going bananas on stage, trying to see how much energy we can get between us and the audience to keep circulating and keep building. That's Michael Fitzpatrick, singer for the band Fits in the Tantrums, talking about the band's energetic live show. Fitz talks about writing hook-filled three-minute songs, the band's transformation from a soul sound to more of an 80s influence, how the band never practices, and much more on this episode of Behind the Setlist. Welcome to Behind the Setlist, the podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they perform live. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. And I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. Jay, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about this particular episode with uh, Michael Fitzpatrick or Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums. You know, if there's one band that knows how to pack a punch in three to three and a half minutes, I think it's Fitz and the Tantrums. So it was great to be able to talk to him recently, uh, Michael Fitzpatrick, the band's founder and uh, lead singer. Fitz and the Tantrums are an L.A. band known for such songs as Hand Clap, Out of My League and The Walker. They started out with a classic soul sound on their 2010 album, Picking Up the Pieces. And for that album, check out the songs Money Grabber and Breaking the Chains of Love to get a sense of their style. Uh, for their next album, More Than Just a Dream in 2013, they began a progression of more pop-influenced sounds with more synthesizer and drum machines. That continued through their 2017 self-titled album and 2019's All the Feels. And then Fitz's love for 80s music really shines through on the band's latest album, Let Yourself Free, from 2022. Yeah, Fitz has a knack for tight, punchy songwriting filled with memorable hooks. A song like Hand Clap is instantly memorable. Listeners may have heard The Walker uh, from 2013. It's been used in trailers, movies, commercials. And, and same with Hand Clap. You know, it was featured in a Fiat commercial in 2016, and that really put the song on the top of Clio's top TV commercials chart. It makes sense. Their songs are upbeat, energetic, and have great hooks, and are superbly written and, and performed. And they're a fantastic live band. I was fortunate enough to see them play back in 2014 when they were touring in support of More Than Just a Dream. They remain an upbeat, tight, energetic live band. Do yourself a favor and watch some concert video on YouTube and check out the band's live album, Live in Chicago, that was recorded at the Metro in 2011. 
Fitz and the Tantrums are heading out on the road in September with another recent guest of the podcast, Goo Goo Dolls, on their big night out tour. Then Fitz hits the Ocean's Calling Festival in Ocean City, Maryland on October 1st. But for this episode, we focused on the band's August 27th, 2022 show at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. So without further ado, here's Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums on Behind the Set List. Let it roll. Yeah, we took a look at the August 27th concert at the Greek Theater, and it's a hometown show for you. It's a great venue. I mean, a hometown show. You know, I grew up right around the corner from there at Wilton and Franklin, so uh, I have an incredibly long history with that neighborhood, with that venue. I went to see Radiohead there when they had all the people hiding in the trees in the forest that <laughs> snuck in to see the show. Uh so many shows growing up and then before my band had success my best one of my close friends who had a band called she wants revenge justin warfield we both were making similar music at the time he got signed after making three songs <laughs> and i was so jealous and could not find the joy in like being happy for him he called me back i just left k-rock i was like and they're like they just played our song and i was like good for you <laughs> You know, because I was still in the the valley of fifteen years of total abject reject, total rejection from the mu music business, and that culminated for me where I was like, okay, I just have to, not in a religious way, but more in just a, to the universe, I have to pray for the willingness to be happy for my friend, and I kept doing it every day, and it didn't feel authentic. And kept doing it. And then it finally happened as I was standing side stage at the Greek watching him play the biggest show of his life. And I felt this genuine joy for my friend and his success. And however many years later, five, six, seven years later, my path with Fitz and the Tantrum started. Our show, that's the second time we've headlined the Greek I love that theater. I wish they would let us play a little louder because they got a, a ridiculous low dB limit there, and I like to rock it a little hard. I'm totally deaf at this point. Um, but what I remember about that show is that show was the last show of a five-week-long tour, and we had just finished doing eight show, seven shows in eight days, which for a vocalist is, is absolutely brutal. Yeah. Um, and of course, by show four or five, pushing my body that hard, especially at the end of a tour, I got sick as a dog. And the day before we were driving down to Hollywood for our last show of the tour, I had no voice. <sighs> and I had to do something that I really tried to avoid, which is I had to take a ton of steroids just to get through the show. Show was amazing. But I had also, that was the last show of what had ended up being like a three-month journey for me of touring and not being home for three months straight, uh, which was really hard for me and my wife. We have three boys underneath 10 years old, so it's a lot of work. And I got into the car driving home after this glorious hometown show, end of tour, and my wife said, 
rubbed me on my back and she said, you made it. You made it through those three and a half months. And I went, you're right. I did. And I just started to uncontrollably weep. Just started sobbing from this held tension of like, just I'm going to get through three months of not sleeping in my own bed and not seeing my family just through grit, will and determination. And it just hit me like a tidal wave after that. I love that venue so much. It's a magical place to, 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 to play. Yeah. You uh, started that show with OCD, complicated, don't got to work it out. I mean, that intro, those first three songs, it kind of set the tone <laughs> for the night. Talk about how you select those songs that you're going to uh, open with. Yeah, you know, every... Uh... I like a well-oiled machine. I like to know that things are going to nail and hit every time the same way. That's also why I'm lucky enough to play with uh, musicians that come from jazz and classical background. The secret about Fits and the Tantrums is we never rehearse. And when I say we never rehearse, I mean we never rehearse, ever. Wow. We'll get together at the beginning of a record. We'll figure out... Who's playing what part? What's doing this? Are we going to put those weird, like, choppy vocals on a playback track? You know, like, we're just figuring out who's doing what because there's not even enough hands to do it all. We all learn it, and then we go play, and we never rehearse, ever. And not to toot our own horn, but we sound badass. And that's because these guys put in their Malcolm Gladwellian 10,000 hours of practice. They're incredibly gifted at what they do you know our drummer who sadly this summer just retired from the band but he's a guy he shows up whole new albums worth of material will play it 98 percent perfect the first time through the whole set because the guy has made charts for every song and has studied it at home and he's memorized his charts he's got his little cheat sheet he can glance back to but he'll literally nail it the first time out and the only thing i'll be like i'll be like oh reintro verse two drop the kick for eight bars he's like got it and i never have to tell him again and that's the same way it is for all the guys in the band they're just such ridiculously talented musicians that we can get away with not seeing each other for six months get on a stage we maybe run a song at soundcheck and then we go and to us it's a little loosey-goosey until we get to show three or four but not to anybody else because the level that they've set and we've all set for each other it far surpasses popular music's you know thresholds wow um but to go back those songs ocd i like i like to to craft a show we find a nice arc of energy uh, and then I like to stick with it for quite a while until basically the rest of the band like corners me and says, we need to change something. We need to mix it up here. Uh, you know, uh, and then I begrudgingly like hear them out. Like, All right. And then we do it. And so halfway through last year, somebody suggested, oh, let's make OCD the opener. I love that song so much. And, you know, uh, being a, a total 80s baby myself, it has a lot of of influences from from that era yeah it, it's a great song to kind of 
kick things off, I get to play guitar, which I don't play a lot of actual instruments besides singing on stage because I want to focus on being the best performer I can be. But it's, it's a fun song to kick off the whole set for sure. In this set, you did a couple songs from your new album, Let Yourself Free, Sway, and, and I want to say Moneymaker. You know, when, the first time I saw, actually, I hate to say the only time I saw you play, I think it was 2014, um, you know, you, you had much more, I would say, a classic soul sound when you started, and there's a more pop sound now, and if you think I'm getting the descriptions wrong, I would love to hear how you think you've, you've progressed over the years, but I didn't see you in this era, and you have so much more of a catalog, and I think your songs have changed, your songwriting has changed a bit. So what? tell me about those new songs and, and writing, writing the new songs for the album. Yeah, and I, I think you're totally right. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously our first album, Picking Up the Pieces, was the song that put us on, uh, the album that put us on our map, uh, on, on the map, and it was extremely focused because prior to Fits and the Tangents, I had had more projects than I can tell you, more bands than I care to remember. But I think one of the biggest mistakes I made in making all those records was that I made them too broad, uh, touching on too many of my influences, and it didn't have a cohesion or a focus. So when I set out to write a new grouping of songs for, at that point, I didn't even know what it would be, but it would become Fits in the Tangent. I said, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to create the spectrum down to a small, narrow window. And if it doesn't fit in that world, no matter how good the song is, it's out. And so that first album was extremely Motown stacks driven, but it was also, if not equally uh, filtered through all the Northern soul, 1980s British invasion bands that were trying to do soul music through an 80s lens. Right, And so here I am in the 2000s making a record that's soul, but soul also through the filter of that 80s period of British soul music, as well as kind of trying to give a hip-hop influence to the beat making. What also happened with that record, too, was that, you know, all the reviews were like, throwback soul, retro soul, throwback soul, retro soul. But it started to feel almost like a dismissive phrase where they're like yeah these guys have had this success you know but the kind of the gist was like but they're doing throwback soul so who who couldn't get there um and so i was like oh i'm gonna show you what's what and also my biggest influence even parallel or slightly above soul and stacks and all that 60s stuff it was new wave so i wanted to like broaden the spectrum of what we were doing way more than just having it have to fit under that moniker and i figured now that we had had some success i could try and take some chances and noelle showed up with this song that she wrote and she said oh i wrote this for the cold war kids i want you to hear it tell me what you think and she's singing in like a low British masculine voice her demo of Out of My League. And I was like, uh, you're not giving this to friggin' <laughs> anybody. We're keeping this for us. And she's like, what? It doesn't even sound like us. It's not what we do. I'm like, 
trust me. Because what I knew was that I wanted to make this new record more 80s influenced. And I said, this is going to be the song that is going to break us at Alternative Radio. Because I, it's plucking on every heartstring that I have of my love of 80s music. And I'm counting on the fact that every program director at every alternative station in the United States is probably around my age and maybe a little bit older. And their biggest influence, whether they know it or not, subconsciously or consciously, is 100% 80s new romantic new ways. So I said, let's let's make this song. I took her demo. We rewrote a little bit. I wrote a bridge, produced it with Tony Hoffer and stuff, and uh, and it turned out to be right because it was the longest run to number one at uh, Alternative up until that point uh, in history. I don't know if something took longer, but it took 36 weeks on the Billboard charts for it to get to number one. Um, And so then we make our third record. You know, I wanted to get more pop with that. I was super into writing with songwriters and really diving deep into like the craft of songwriting and loved working. One of the reasons why I love working with outside songwriters as opposed to just musicians or band members sometimes is that songwriters are the best revisers of all time. They love revising. And artists have a harder time revising things. You know, they make it, they think it's awesome. You know, and to me, I'm always trying to beat the hell out of the song and make it better. So we're listening. I'm like, all right, that's cool. I was like, but does that pre-chorus hit in the right way? You know, a band usually will be like, what? It's perfect. Or somebody's precious about their guitar noodle. They just laid down or whatever. Songwriters, they're like, let's try and beat it. We got that. We can always go back. Yeah, fuck it. Let's throw it away. Let's let's try another swing at it. Love that. I love that process. Um, and it bore great fruit. You know, I worked with my good friend, uh, Sam Hollander on hand clap and we wrote that song in 15 minutes and then seven minutes into writing it, I knew it was the song and I knew it was a hit. Yeah. I just knew it. And I called my A&R guy at Atlantic. I said, listen to this new song is a hit play for him. He's like, that doesn't even sound like you. I was like, ah, hang up. I just was so pissed. I remind that he's a good friend of mine. We're not, we're, we don't work together. You switch labels, but I remind him of that moment often. Good, good. So Out of My League is obviously a popular streaming track too. Does streaming affect how you build your set list? Do you ever look online and say, oh, well, on Spotify or Apple Music, this thing's going crazy, or on YouTube, this is really popular. Do you use those outside kind of indicators or do you just kind of go by your gut? Not really, you know, I mean, I think the craziest thing is that Out of My League was one of the earliest uh, TikTok viral moments, but it was when people were doing audio only, you know, they were just using the sound of an artist. It wasn't like, here's a dance or here's me slamming a cream pie into my wife's face. You know, it was just purely the audio. And we didn't understand because Hand Clap was by far our biggest song. You know, sales-wise, you can still say, you know, Hand Clap sold 1.4 million actual copies of the record in the United States just on iTunes alone. 
Yeah. Just that. And oddly, you didn't play it at this particular show. <laughs> what? Out of my league? Oh, Hancock? No, I must have. It must have been. In, it was for sure at the beginning of the the encore. We never don't play. Oh, that. so they just uh, left we, it off. Yeah, they must have left okay. it off. Okay, because we All right. uh, we would we would get we get arrested if we didn't play. <laughs> I thought so. At our shows, um, but all of a sudden, you know, we have our number one streaming song by far is Hancock, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, like, why the hell is out of my league streaming like half a million a day a day i'm like what is happening and you know that was a few years ago and it was like oh it's been used like four hundred thousand times as audio on tiktok yeah which you know all the time you know as you guys know no no tiktoky now no no career right now um and so, you know, and people are like, yeah, make a viral moment. I'm like, you don't just make no. one, first of all. And P.S., I would say in the law of averages and stuff is we already had our viral moment on TikTok. So what's the chances I'm going to get two? Eh, not so sure. I mean, I'm going to still take swings at it and do some stupid ass dance, uh, you know, to some song I don't care about, you know, to, to try and get uh that moment but all i'll say about that is i'm so grateful that my career happened and flourished before tiktok because i i feel for these new artists they're not even making music they're just content creators and they'll work a, a whole year on an album and then their label doesn't see enough viral shit and they'll just literally shelve their album does does tiktok does does streaming come into your mind when you're writing a song songs are shorter than they used to be People might want to think about, well, is this going to work on TikTok when you're writing? I mean, you're a you craft amazing songs. Does that come into your head purposefully when you're writing? Not really. Uh, I think myself, like everybody else, my sh my attention span she just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's so crazy now. Like I have trouble writing a song that's longer than three minutes. And if I hear any song by anybody that's longer than three minutes, I'm like, y'all need to do some editing. Like, I'll listen to even, God, what classic old song was I listening to? And I was like, it's like, oh, just. I mean, running up that hill get, was five minutes the, long. Don't bore us. Just get to the chorus yeah. already. I'm like, geez. I'm like, and you're giving us a four. I'm like, just can the song already. Uh, it's so bad. I have the lowest. So for me, I just automatically was starting to write 258 songs. Now I'm down to like 230 songs. I've got one song that I had to struggle to get over two minutes on this record. Um, but I never do it with that in mind. I think the sad part now is in writing music and when you're doing your lyrics and stuff, it's not a stupid idea to think about the quotable, the quotableness of the lyric you say. And I watched that like, obviously like a perfect example and she had tons of money and, and influence behind her, but like you have Megan Trainer's new song "Made You Look," it's got onomatopoeic, vibrant, neon-colored lyrics with brand names. It's got a, a, and I love that song. I'm not knocking it at all. It's got a cool dance to it. it. I mean, the whole thing just came together like a perfect thing, and it's it's blown up. But I I don't think that her and the other songwriters that that did that weren't somewhat aware of 
some of that process. Yeah. Um, I think if you can find a lyric that really feels like a statement or says something profound in a clever way that's succinct enough that that's not a bad idea to consider in your songwriting because it gives your song a quotable moment in your thing. Now, here's a perfect example. And I didn't, we didn't try and do this, but there's a, a, a song on this record. It's not even one of the singles. It's called Ah, A-A-A-H-H-H, like Ah. Yep. Or like a crowd screaming. And the pre-chorus goes, uh, I could be someone when I grow up. And that's the whole line of the pre-chorus. And it's like a, uh, a drop with like strings and it gets very through. And then it kicks into this anthemic positive message song about uh, I'm going to be a big shot. I'm going to be a big deal. Don't think too small. Don't put me in a box. And what happened, and it's already starting to have a little bit of its own viral moment. People are making TikTok videos uh, and the footage for the uh, Will I Be Someone When I Grow Up is all these pictures of them as a little kid doing whatever their metier is, their craft. And then when the chorus kicks in, it's them standing on stage in front of a thousand people doing a, a double, triple backflip, doohickey, schnickledoodle, whatever, you know what I mean? And what I realized was that we weren't trying to create that moment, but it might be the most quotable part of the whole record. And people went out, yeah. they felt that lyric, they felt that message, and they're creating. Now, We'll see. I'll tell you in six months if it actually became a viral thing or not. And obviously now, like the label and everyone's like, oh, let's pour some gasoline on it. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. You know? Um, yeah. So we'll see. You know, it's such a tricky thing. You you don't want to sacrifice your art. You don't want to be inauthentic. Um but it might serve you to like spend 10 minutes thinking about, is this the best way to say this? Is this a statement? Is this something that resonates with people? I saw it all the time playing with Andy Grammer because that mofo is great. Oh, yeah. So he has a, a song that's been doing well lately. I just want you to know you saved my life. Whoa, oh, 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 right? Just saying, I just want you to know you, you saved my life. I mean... It gives me chills because I also watched them perform it every night and saw the the bananas reaction from people. And then saw, I was like, oh, it makes sense to me why this song is getting viral because it's like people are showing like their stepdad that stepped up to the plate and became their dad. Yeah. They're showing, you know, their teacher, they're showing their mom, whatever, you know, and it's a powerful thing. And did Andy do that on purpose? I don't think so, but he always wants to put positivity and great messages out in the world. And that one was so on the nose and right there for you that it was like, of course people picked it up. Yeah, 100%. Of course they did. Yeah. So during your set, you talked about this arc, and, and I definitely see it, because right after Living for the Weekend, you kind of you take a little bit of a turn, and it's 6 a.m., Fool's Gold, Money Grabber, it it it's a different section of the show and it's beautiful in its own right but it, it it's kind of this 
dynamic change. Can you speak to that a little bit? And was that intentional? Yeah, I think, well, one, you know, we're a band with five albums now. So you're like, okay, well, I love it because it basically I get to pick the best songs from every record, lose the ones that we've been playing for the last two years that we all loved and we wanted it to hit. And it never, you could just never get the, the kind of reaction you were hoping for from the audience. So they go one by one and you bring in the new babies from the record and then you're like, okay, now we've got five albums. We've got an hour long and a half long set. What are we going to give people from all of these things? You know, I mean, we, we have a whole contingency of like diehard first album that still to this day, do not forgive us for abandoning, uh, you know, retro soul. Everything I do, they go out of their way to remind me that it's not as good as the first record and I should go back to that. So we have to satiate those fans and it would be weird to play. You know, we randomly did a show the other day where we ran out of time and we didn't do Money Grabber. And it's like, well, Uh-oh. that's weird because we've always done that. And so when we made the, uh, the More Than Just a Dream album with Out of My League and The Walker on it, when we put it out, I mean, the level of haterade was high from a lot of these people. And they're like, oh, these guys are sellouts. They jumped on the 80s bandwagon. I'm like, can I swear on this? Yes. I was like, you motherfuckers, you don't know shit. I'm like, <laughs> I am an 80s baby. There's nobody more 80s than this guy right here. Like, I had every import from the UK six to nine months before you even knew who Kaja Gugu was, so eat it, okay? <laughs> Don't tell me I'm jumping on a bandwagon here. This is my genre that you already appropriated in 2000, yeah. so suck it. Uh, to me, like, those people, they never forgave us, and then we had infinitely more success with Out of My League and The Walker and that whole second album. Our audience share grew five tenfold so then we put out the hand clap record and then it's not the people that love the first record that are mad it's all the people from the second record that found us and then that became their touchstone and they're like oh you guys have in, uh, abandoned your indie roots and your 80s influence for all this pop drivel i'm just like and that's when i realized i was like oh you're never gonna make no. these fools happy you can't win. do what you want to do we try and create a set that that offers a taste of all of our music. I'm surprised because I'm like, when you put the whole set together, I'm like, it's aesthetically pretty diverse, but this audience is, is willing to go on this journey. We don't get any flack for it. And, and I just keep going back. And it was the same thing during each transition of each record was Noel and my voices are the through line. And so long as there's that, and the songwriting and the intent there, even if the sonics of it change, that is the through line that's going to carry us through. And so that pivot moment from a hyper-pop song like Living for the Weekend, which I just love playing live because it gets me hyped and the audience goes crazy and it's got crazy low end into it. So literally, if you're in the front, when that chorus drops, you might shit your pants. It was a level of low end that just hits you like a vibrating bass. You know, it's just a lot. 6 a.m. was one of those ones that people, it was never a single, 
but it became like a fan favorite. Like people really dug that song. They loved the duet nature of it. Um, I love that song. It really worked well. And so it just, you know, at a certain point, you know, there's gonna be, if you're putting a song from album four and a album from song one on, there's gonna be a little, a little like, whoa, that's a, a jump. But people, you know, people seem to be going on that journey with us. And it's so crazy to see, you know, that first record, we had all kinds of demographic of people, but we also had, you know, older people. And then when we switched our sound up for more than just a dream and on Hancock, we were able to take a lot of these older people that probably barely are new music consumers. They had finally found their first favorite new band in 10, 15 years, which was us. And because of that, we kind of brought some of these people. I still see them, you know, recurring fans that were like 60 when the first album came out. They're 70 something now. And they, they're super into hand clap. And I'm like, would they have ever gotten there if they didn't start out with us with this first record and go on this arc of this journey? And for me, this new album was an attempt to, to really draw a through line through all of our records to, to go all the way back to the beginning and pull some of that soul influence because also as a vocalist, I just, as I was writing this record and I was trying to lean in on the soul stuff, I was, I was like, not to toot my own horn, but God damn, my voice sounds good when I'm a crooner. You know, it just, there's something when I'm belting like on silver platter or on stepping on me that my voice just sounds extra. And it doesn't always sound that way on every kind of song. I'm a very specific kind of singer I don't have a falsetto. I can't do crazy runs. I have a lane of the six or seven things I know how to do. And I try and stick to that. And I love bringing in some of that soul influence back in uh, like Stepping on Me and uh, Silver Platter. Those are like two of my favorite songs on the record. I'm excited to finally like get some of those songs on the set list plus this album ends with a ballad which we almost never do a beautiful song that i wrote with matthew coma over zoom actually at the very beginning of the pandemic because i made a whole solo record via zoom with four of my friends and i didn't end up using it for that record and when i was finishing up this record i just went and listened to some of those old demos i came back to that song someday and i said this song will be amazing if Noel and I sang it as a duet. Uh, it's so emotional to me. And uh, so we brought it back and finished it for this record. And I love it as the closer to the album. That's Someday? Yeah. yeah. Maybe my favorite vocal performance I've ever captured. How faithful are you to to the recorded versions when you play live? Do you try to recreate what you've done in the studio to a T? Or, or what's your what's your approach there? Not to a T, but I, I like it to, to, to me, the, the difficulty now in music, you know, every chord has been played. Every melody has been played. We are in a very basic Western 12 note scale there. Most of those combinations, certainly every chord has been played. And you could say that almost every melody has been played already. And so if that whole world in terms of exploration and pushing 
music and sonics, if that whole world has already pretty much been used, the only final frontier is aesthetics and the the bow that and the 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 wrapping you put your song in and uh everything connotes so much information so much aesthetics do i have a live snare is it ringy is it dead is it sound like it's from you know neil young's record wherever like I feel like they put seven blankets on the snare because it's the deadest snare you've ever heard. Or is it like live and boombastic? Or is it a trap snare? Or is it an 80s clap with reverb on? Every one of those, whether you know it or not, you're extrapolating a vibe and an aesthetic from it. And to me, like... If you don't have those sound choices and those sounds, and what we try and do is always try and create juxtapositions and weird conjunctions and and blending. I always tell the guys in my band when we're writing and stuff, I was like, look, if I play a keyboard bass, uh, keyboard synth line, the last thing I fucking want you to do is to play another 80s keyboard part against it. The last thing I want you to do is is go break out your 80s drum machine and program an 80s drum beat. I was like, because as soon as you've done two of those, you're just doubling down on that aesthetic, and now we're doing a pastiche of that moment. I was like, if this part's from this genre, then give me a, a, a 60s soul snare. Cool. Now give me like a hyper, like uh, Charlie Puth bass that's actually just a hyper recorded one that everyone is getting that super like plucky bass sound. That's all like a sample. We all have the same friggin' one. I was like, but have that one. Use that. You know, like let's mix it up and let's put those. So when you go to perform it live, you take away all those sonic choices. It's so incredibly easy for your amazing song to just sound like a basic bar band. Yeah. So you finish up this night with The Walker, but um, the show that we were looking at the notes from, it said that uh, your kids came on stage and danced around with you. And and I've seen that happen. I think I saw it with Fountains of Wayne and a few other people where at certain shows they bring kids up and there's something really fun <laughs> about doing that. Was that just because it was in Los Angeles or do you do that at other shows? Um, we do it every once in a while, uh, invariably, especially my oldest, if he's out on uh, or he's visiting a show or on, in this case, he came and worked for me for seven day, uh, six days on the road and was part of uh, monitor engineering world and worked for them. And nine year old boy working like 13 hour day buses his butt. He had his walkie talkie. He wow. showed up. He flew up to Missoula, Montana, where we're on tour, took his first solo flight, met us. And he starts working and they give him his own tool belt with his own carabiner <laughs> and his own walkie. And they look at him. He's got black pants, black shoes, and a white shirt. And they're like, oh, that's not going to do. And they sent the runner to get him a six-pack of black T-shirts because they're like, your crew now. You cannot go out on no. stage with a white shirt. And the guy murdered it. He worked his butt off and, and made a little money and had the best time. So he, every night, begging you're going to bring me out, you're going to bring me out, you're going to bring me out. He, I brought him out once, and he stood there like a deer in the headlights. And then the next day, he was like, are you going to bring me out? I was like, not if you just stand there. I was like, if you want to be out on stage, you got to work it, buddy. Come on. Like, 
sell it. Um, and my little one was the most amazing because he has a little those cool teachable guitars. They're more like uh, what's it called ukulele. They're called Lou guitars, and they're great. And so he just walks around the house playing, and he was like, "You're going to bring me on stage, and I'm going to play." So I was like, "L.A. got a big surprise for you. We've got the hottest session player in all of L.A. who said he'd come out on stage with us." My friend, a good friend, Jared Scharf, who used to play for SNL, he's an amazing guitar player. I was like, watch out, Jared, he's coming for your job. And then I called my little boy, Remy, who's three, and he, like, comes out with his Lou guitar nice. and, like, plucked a couple of strings. I love it because it connects me with my family. Our show is very family-driven. We have a lot of young people. You know, our demo, people are like, who is your demo? I'm like, you cannot tell me because it's literally, like, five to seventy and everything in the middle. We'll have shows where I'm looking at like two super goth people, like super, could not be more goth looking, singing our happy songs. And I'm just looking at them the whole show, so confused because I'm like, why the hell are you here? And they discovered us when we opened up for Flogging Molly in 2009, and they've been fans <laughs> ever since. Then next to like, College kids next to like a mom and dad with their two young kids next to an older couple, retired couple. And you're just like, what is happening here? This is like the craziest mix of people ever. That's amazing. It sounds like a festival crowd at your shows, like a, a big mix of different people as if you're at a festival. It really is. And I think people see that. And also, you know, we've never tried to be the coolest, hippest band. You know, I love bringing positivity and joy we cut our teeth and built our name on putting on like a show you know you're coming to the church of music if you're coming to our show we want you to dance clap dance along noel and i are going bananas on stage trying to see how much energy we can get between us and the audience to keep circulating and keep building um and i think people enjoy being given permission to like do an awkward white guy dance you know they they love being given permission to let their hair down and have have some fun and we bring an hour and a half joy an hour and a half escape to people from the craziest last friggin couple years that any of us has had to deal with or we meet a family that asked to come backstage and meet us and they tell us that their daughter is just recovering from six months in the hospital fighting cancer and that the whole entire time she listened to hand clap every day as her like summons the courage and the energy to get on and me and the other guys we all have kids we're all weeping in front of this little girl who's over the moon to meet us and her parents looking at us saying like thank you thank you for giving us like this song and so many stories of that, and you realize, like, oh, what what my hipster friend in Silver Lake is dissing me about my songs being a little too positive or whatever. I'm like, I, I could give a shit because this power of what this happened is so real and important. You write a song, you have your ideas about it, and then you put it out in the world, and then it's no longer yours. And how people perceive it, take it in use it in their life to get through a hard breakup, through sickness, through a, a loss of a family, all of that stuff. 
you see the power of that music and what it means for people. And ever since that experience with that little girl, I do not take that moment for granted or the power of any kind of song. Even if somebody's looking at me going, dude, that might be a little mainstreamy or cheesy sounding. And I say, you know what? I needed that message today to get my ass off the, the couch and, and try and be a dad today, even though I don't feel like being one today. You know, I was like, that, those messages people need. Um, and I'll, yeah. I'll take that over being a, being a, a beloved pitchfork band any day of the week. That's a, a beautiful sentiment. Be, before we wrap up, I wanted to make sure that I asked you about yeah, the, the latest album, Let Yourself Be Free. You said that this might be the, your favorite record that you've made. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, you know, Let Yourself Free, I think I gave myself permission to to draw like we were talking about before on all the different albums. I also, my approach was different on this record than I've done before where every other record I've written 80 to a hundred songs per album. Wow. Um, one, just because I think the biggest mistake artists with success make is thinking that everything they do is awesome, which is just, we can see time and time again, is not the case. And the most dangerous is uh, an artist that blew up on their first record, you know, like really blew up, like top 40 blew up. And then they just like, they'll put out whatever and think it's awesome. And I'm way too paranoid. I want to work on that stuff all the time. But on this record, I, I was just like, I need to be more judicious about how I spend my time, how much I invest in every idea. I said to myself, this record, I'm going to write 40 songs. So that's half to more than half of what I usually do, which for me, it was like a big step. And what it came down to was in the songwriting room. I used to go on speed dating with a lot of songwriters. New people, you walk in a room, you sit down, what's your name, what's your name? Hey, okay, let's all try and write a song. I mean, it works sometimes, but this record I had written on the last album with K-Flay, we were making, finishing our records at the same time. I was having a hard time, I was burnt out. And I was asking her about her process and stuff. And I was like, do you write with a lot of people? And she's like, oh, hell no. I only write with like four people that I love. And I was like, oh, why didn't I just do that on that fourth Fits in the Tantrums record? So ever since then, I can't get that idea out of my head. I have a pool of, of artists and, and musicians that I love to work with. And when we were in the room, I was just vicious. I'd be like, yeah, that's, I can tell you already by hearing that chord progression, that's not right. They're like, but it's not. I'm like, let's just move on. We'd sit there, we'd write a song. If the song didn't come together in 15, 20 minutes, or I didn't hear all of us in the room singing 10,000 melody ideas, get rid of it. Because you can ask any songwriter, there's chord progressions that you think sound amazing, but then you start to sing over them and you realize, oh, there's literally only two melodies you can sing over this. It's going to be really hard to write a verse, a pre-chorus, a chorus, and a post-chorus, and a bridge out of this. You know, uh, I've always found that if the chords, if we all have an abundance of ideas, the song is going to practically write itself. 
And that for the most part, you shouldn't have to trudge a painful road to get a song. It's almost never that I go back and keep revising and keep working and massaging a song. I can't even remember the last one that made it on an album. The ones that made it on an album are almost every one of them, like 70% of the idea you could see within the first hour. Because that means it just has a flow. It has an ease. It has a, a magical energy of whatever happened in the day. Like I said, Hancock, written in 15 minutes. Biggest song I've ever had in my life. Yeah. The, the song doesn't even make sense. It's literally a song that's about feeling and vibe and a moment. And it captured a lot of things that I was feeling. But when you break it down, it's more just uh, an assaultive alliteration, automatopoeic onslaught of vibe in the verses. Right. I'm listening to the song. I'm like, oh, woo. you know, me and Sam, we wrote that. And we're dancing in the room. I, let, I was so happy because it came at the end of six months of trying to write a song. And I had not one song that I liked after six months. And I was ready to, like, kill myself. I was go- showing up at home crying, just being like, I can't write a song to save my life. And I went in with Sam. I was just pissed off. It was our first session ever together. I was like, give me a kick. Give me a shitty-ass snare. I was like, do that. I was like, all right, now give me like the shittiest saxophone sample. No, uglier, no cheesier than that. <laughs> and I wrote, which I still to believe, which just to me just sounds like a Yiddish melody. I was just like, is anyone going to like call me out for that being like a Yiddish melody? Nobody ever has, but I always have thought. It. And I was like, give me like a shitty upright bass sound. And there was the sound. And then we started flowing on lyrics and Sam is a lyric genius. Started writing it, and we knew we had it. It just came together. And I I waited another three years for another moment like that. This record I I love because I took a lot more care to not burn myself out in the process. I love the fact that it's a through line through all of our records that we've done. I love bringing back a lot of that soul element because it just feels so good. I, like I said, I think that's where I sound the best when I'm singing. It's joyful and and I love I love the the intent and the messages of of this record. And the reason why we chose "Let Yourself Free" as the title was. God damn, we've all been cooped up and and truncated and mitigated enough yeah it is a fun and you said it it's a joyful album and i think i said let yourself be free of course it's let yourself free and just from start to finish if you can't have a a good time listening to this uh, album maybe you don't have a pulse it's just a a very joyful uh, i think that's the best way to put it thank you brother Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.